This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCute, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. Welcome back to Good Things Guy, where uh, today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Floris Berger, who uh, we've had quite an interesting offline discussion about how he has a new respect for doctors after getting COVID-19 and being in that space. Dr. Berger, tell us a little bit more. Thanks for this opportunity. I think what I would like to add before I start sharing my experience is I consider the frontline everyone that dealt with me. From my first exposure to a organization that tested me right through to when I was released and the post-hospitalization care I, I'm receiving. So I think I would like to touch on all of those to say that um, the professionalism, and I will probably conclude with that after my story, the professionalism and care and empathy that I was treated with from the day I tested voluntarily up until today. I think I would like to share my experiences regarding my whole and the month and a half of exposure to, to people dealing with COVID patients. Super. So, Dr. Berger, what sort of symptoms were you showing that you went to go get tested? None whatsoever. I, I traveled for business via Kenya. I stayed over a full flight, just add. So, sitting in economy class, full flight, nobody wearing masks. That was now two months ago. And I wasn't concerned because at that time, South Africa wasn't even talking about lockdown. Stayed over in a hotel in, in Nairobi, had a stopover in Accra and Liberia on my way to Sierra Leone. Spent there a week in Sierra Leone after traveling in a full vehicle for seven hours, seven hours back, another nine hours on the airplane, stopovers. So I said to myself upon return, there were a lot of international travel of passengers on the airplane. And I said, what's the chances of me having the virus? And I said, probably very good. No symptoms whatsoever. The Monday, um, three days after, or I returned on the Friday, the last flight out of Sierra Leone, I need to add, I probably wouldn't have had this chat with you if I didn't make it out in time. No symptoms. Monday, I went for the test at Empath. That was my first exposure. I'm not nervous at all. They treated me very, um, you know, they probably thought I had symptoms. They didn't ask me. I just showed my passport and the travels for the past couple of weeks. They said, now I'm definitely eligible for a test. So no fever, no cough. No, like none of those symptoms that people are saying that they get from this. Not a single symptom. And I could have picked it up only three days prior or 10 days. I wouldn't know. I had no symptoms whatsoever. I felt good. But like I said, as a precautionary, I thought, let me just go and get a test. The next day, that's the Tuesday, the pathologist called me. First, she informed my, my GP um, of the result. She called me personally and said, Flores, you, you're positive. And I said, what should I do? I wasn't anxious at all because I was, in a way, said to myself, I'll be very lucky if I didn't pick it up. Like I said, even on the flight back, there were no, they tested our temperatures at the airport, which was checked a day before admission. It was normal. I had slight symptoms the week after, you know, the three or four days after I tested positive. And what kind of symptoms were those? It was really just headaches. And I felt a bit tired and I lost appetite, but I was okay. I was functioning okay and a bit hard-headed. I said to my friends that said, first, you need more attention. I said, but I, I spoke with my GP um, and he advised me what to do, um, prescribe some medication. And then if I can fast forward, 
I ended up in the hospital because the previous two days I've got no memory of. And well, I would like to share that. I think the medical fraternity talks about happy hypoxia. So the oxygen levels in my blood started to drop so significantly um, in the two days before admission that I have no recollection of the, the previous two days, um, none whatsoever. And did anybody close to you say that you started acting strangely or anything? Uh, my friends called me because they know I'm positive. I, I informed my twin sister and one or two close friends that I'm positive, but I'm feeling okay. And the general advice is rest and to check your temperature, rest and drink a lot of water and wait for clear signs of fever. That's two months ago. And you know how the world has changed in two months. I mean, the list of symptoms are now very clear and expanding every day, as you're probably aware of. So the, f the first hero I want to share, absolute hero, was the Department of Health. They called me, apparently, I've got no recollection, they wow. called me on the Saturday, a day before admission. Now, I, I was told this afterwards, of course. She called me, and the sisters, the nurses called Sister Mongizi, apparently called me on the Saturday to confirm uh, my next of kin and to confirm which seat I I sat on the airplane to South Africa because she assumed I was probably surrounded by more South Africans. And I apparently had uh, shared the correct information with her. Then the Sunday morning, this, let's call her a frontline nurse for the sake of, because she's dealing with a, a fresh COVID um, case. She sat there and she went through a list of calls the previous day. And she said, this florist I spoke with yesterday sounded incoherent. Let oh, wow. me call him again. Just out of her own, it wasn't protocol or the procedure that she needs to follow up every day. She called me five times and I didn't pick up. I was fully awake. I didn't hear the telephone ring because my blood sugar, I mean, the oxygen in my blood was already so low that I was semi-conscious in a locked door alone at home. And she was aware of that. So she immediately, after the fifth time of trying, this is, this is I mean, I've spoken with her and I was probably in, the most emotional I was after I was um, um, released. I called her up and I said to her, you saved my life, sister. But back to the chronological events, she then called the hospital, the closest hospital, and said, are you ready to receive a COVID patient? He's semi-conscious. She arranged for the ambulance, which took hours because it's not all ambulances were certified to pick up COVID patients. Wow. So uh, a friend came, waited for them outside, then knocked on my window. I didn't re react, but I was awake. At some point, they wait outside my door for 10, 15 minutes, obviously suited up like Ebola nurses, and then they were able to, to attract my attention. I opened the door. I said, what's, what's this? I was totally confused. And they just said, Flores, you, you, you're very sick. Um, we've arranged for you to be admitted to the hospital. They put me in the, in the ambulance, and from then on, I can't recall anything. So if it wasn't for that nurse that called me on Sunday... The physician said I would have peacefully passed away Sunday night. Wow. As simple as that. I would have lost consciousness. <laughs> so um, that lady I want to meet one day. And even as I share with you now, I feel emotional. Because she, she literally, I'm not taking credit for going for the test. This is the human nature of these nurses. She cared enough to say, let me just give this guy a goal. Not once, five times on Sunday. And then she acted. And before she called my next of kin, she arranged to check the closest hospital to say, I'm repeating, are you ready for a critical patient? And they said, we're, we're ready. The ambulance came. They explained to, because I was resistant, not obstructive. I just said, but I'm, I'm okay. But they know. 
they, they know this, this guy doesn't have enough oxygen in his brain. They just put me in and relaxed me and said, just relax. And then I passed out. The next wow. amazing experience was apparently I walked into the hospital myself because just parts of my brain were fed oxygen. And the physician said, um, all right, how do you feel? I said, no, okay. Your temperature? I said, no, I don't know. My temperature wasn't checked, but it was checked. So they took my temperature. It was fine. They said, well, let's just check this guy out. They took x-rays and they saw my, my lungs because I've got a comorbidity of hypertension, which is under control because of medication. But obviously when the virus grabs hold of high blood pressure bodies, you know, it's like the super uber of, for the virus. So we just accelerated the pumping of blood through my veins uh, into my lungs. So when they looked at the x-rays, they realized if I'm not intubated immediately, they will probably lose me. But credit to the, again, the, let's call them the frontline, people dealing with an infected person. They had a person on, literally in the theater to intubate me. They had the neurologist there. They had everybody on standby. To, and then I guess within minutes or half an hour, I, obviously I don't know. I was put um, under um, anesthetic or induced coma. They intubated me so well that then I'm jumping here to um, release. I had to see the uh, throat specialist um, last week and he said they did a massive job because there was no damage to my vocal cords. There's obviously muscle muscles that need to recover, but somebody that's been with a pipe in their throat for 18, 19 days, there's usually quite significant damage. How long was the pipe down your throat actually? I was intubated, or the pipe was, was down my throat for about 18 days, but I was in the induced coma for 14 days. And they, every time they tried to wake me up from around about day nine, but then your, if your lungs can't respond spontaneously, if you want to call it that, then they need to um, increase the anesthetic again. So Because then your heart rate goes up, it pumps more blood, blood clots started to form. So a lot of blood clotting took place, so they had to cheat that. So they did an absolutely heroic job because it's pure life support and they realize every day beyond day five, six becomes very, very, very critical. So the internist, uh, everybody on the team, the physiologist uh, dealt with me that I can only assume that clinically a, a fantastic job because here I said, I've got no, I'm very positive the way they treated me. I'll get to the later stages, but the way they um, clinically, whilst I was uh, far, far away, they must have done a best-in-the-world in job. When I was woken up or weaned out of the, the induced coma, I was tied to the bed because 99% of patients will pull out the pipe from their throat. That's a natural reaction, even if you if you heavily sedated. But I was able to communicate with my one hand, and every time I indicated, you know, they must come closer, I wanted to write. They came in and they spoke with me, and they calmed me down with so much empathy and calmness. That's what I recall, because I, they realized if they, they can't tell me the truth, because I will overreact, I guess. They just said, Fleurus, you're right. Even if my vitals were, were critical, the hand signals always calmed me down. 24-7, I was being monitored visually and then in terms of, of the vitals that they were monitoring. So I've got three groups of heroes now. That the Department of Health that said, no, we're taking over. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. Then the, the proficiency of the intubation, and then that fight uh, beyond day five, six, seven, eight, nine, just to, I don't want to call it experiment, that's a disservice to their, to their trade, but to just say, we, we're not going to lose this patient. We're not going to lose this patient. So, I mean, that's the next group of heroes. 
And then the, the ICU staff, they apparently, I was very obstructive and they've never probably had this case. And they asked for new protocols to handle very obstructive patients, but I was in heavy sedation. So I take no blame for, for that. But they had to deal with me on a, a psychological level and a clinical level. And I, the recollection I have was one of absolutely perfection. Maybe I'm filtering out the negative, but I'm, I'm not. Hopefully not. Yeah. That was the next group. The ICU staff, I'm not sure if this analogy makes sense, but they, I guess they looked at an adult, but they treated me like a three-month-old baby, if <laughs> that makes sense. You know, yes. with absolute softness and soft voice and patience. And they spoke with me, even if they realized I can't talk. I, mean, I had the pipe in my mouth. I couldn't even write most of the time because I was tied to the bed. So that was the, a real, to me, it, it made me, people ask me, did it change my life? Was this a life-changing experience? And I said, no, I wouldn't have known if I didn't make it. But one thing I've realized is that the inherent empathy and goodness of the human being astonished me. Um, I mean, these people, you can argue they're doing their job, but they're doing it brilliantly. And after day 9, 10, they can easily lose faith in their own abilities, isn't it? But they persisted. The ICU staff treated me consistently with patients. Sometimes I, when I was lightly sedated, I... I realized I'm frust probably frustrating them. And they never had a body language of frustration or irritation. So um, full marks to them. After they extubated me, I was moved to a, another ICU room. And then I started dealing with a more day-to-day -day ICU staff because I wasn't in a chamber anymore. And that was quite amazing as well. When anybody walked in my room, they asked me, how do I feel? And I said, no, I feel fine just seeing you. Because the way they treated me, again, are you all right? You feel comfortable? When I press the, the little alarm bell, they're there in a minute. And again, they treated me with empathy, with care. I could perceive from my ignorant perspective, total competence. I mean, they, they had to check on me every hour right through the night. Again, they tried to wake me off like, like a baby. were very patient because I, then again, I was obstructive. I took out the oxygen pipe from my nose. You know, I didn't wear masks or um, switch off the alarms that were going off. You know, so I was quite out of control at some points. And never were there any um, impatience from anybody. So I, I really felt um, as if the whole hospital were behind me, if that um, was possible. Yeah, so, yeah, and then I would say the competence, the openness and honesty, I would like to add, from the physician that treated me, they were straight with me. They realized when they weaned me out of the, the induced coma, they can't tell me how bad it is. But really, a couple of days later, they were very clear with me to say, you were critical, you need to relax, you need to keep your heart rate down because this is, these are the risks. And every time when they did a sonar and they picked up blood clots, they were open with me. They said, Flores, there's a slight, they didn't even call it, it wasn't really a complication. There's a slight delay in your release. We need to put you on antibiotics for a couple of days, relax. We've seen this before, it's normal. They never tried to, I won't say traumatize, but to upset me. But I think they were honest enough to, to not withhold critical information. And I would yes. like to add the way they treated my family as well, the front line, because they had to, my twin sister were on their, their backs every single day for that month for feedback. And it was yes. honest, it was sincere, it was with empathy. When people, I mean, still call me from the hospital, whether it's a physiotherapist or the receptionist at the physician, and then they're emotional. So, I mean, I think that to me, again, back to what did I learn? I learned a massive 
um, ability of the human being to care for, for somebody. And I'm not more deserved than anybody else, is it? So I'm, I'm convinced that that's just the nature of the frontline and the medical fraternity to say, our job is to make sure this person walks out here in the best possible condition. And I, that I experienced, like I say, from my first exposure with the pathologist when they tested me and post-release now as well. Yeah, that's in short the chronological set of events. Dr. Berger, it's just um, the most crazy story. And it's such an honor to get to speak to someone who's lived through COVID-19. I feel like a lot of us feel far removed from it. Like we don't know anybody that has it or we haven't really heard stories of people that have recovered. So I guess I just have two questions. And the first is, um, how long have you been home now? Yes, now about four weeks. And how are you feeling now? Like, how's, how's your mental state? How's your physical? Have you got energy? Are you feeling flat? What is your, your mental and physical health like now? Yeah, I, let's start. I, think I would like to answer that in terms of the emotional, the cognitive, and the, and the physical side. Emotionally, I'm, I'm very, very well. I don't have bad flashbacks. And when I, when, I, when I do have them, they prepared me very well for that. Part of the rehabilitation was one or two sessions with a psychiatrist. They just warned me, even the physiotherapist said, I will slowly recollect events, obviously not during the anesthetic stage, the anesthesia stage, but slowly when my friends say first, but I called you on the Saturday and this is what I said. I slowly recall that. But emotionally, I'm very well. And I think it's just the way I was treated. I don't want to give them all the credit, but yes. um, I'm, I'm positive. I'm very positive. I sleep well. They obviously gave me sufficient medication to, to calm me down. But emotionally, I've, I've the only emotions I had is when I think back and I share the story. Now, when I spoke with you and I said, Sister Mungizi, you know, she's, she's the hero I will never forget her in my life. She will be a big part of a chapter of my book one day. Emotionally, very well from day one. And I think what is nice, they, they're open for any time telephone call. So I can call anybody there, um, not any time, but I mean, and say, I'm worried about this or that in terms of the emotional side. So emotionally, I'm very, very fine. In terms of the cognitive, that's still a way to go. Short-term memory is, is not so good, but I think that's improving every week. How old are you, if I may ask? I'm, I'm 57, and like I said, I'm, I'm currently um, jogging, running about two, three kilometers every day, hour of, of resistance training, and then another hour or so of cognitive training, uh, which they gave me to do. All right, so this is um, all part of the recovery plan, the physio, the cognitive stuff, that, that all forms part of it? Yes, and it's really over to, you know, for me to decide. But I mean, if you're responsible, I, I wrote a letter to the hospital and I think I, I really meant every word of the sentence when I said, I feel in a way um, obligated and indebted to the 20, 30, 40 people that I engaged with to say, Three months from now, I've made a hundred percent recovery. Sure, yeah. That will be the tick against all the boxes to say they were also the positivity of the whole experience. They don't don't lose it now for it. Make a yes. proper recovery. Have a chat with the people in two three months and say, you know what, I'm even better than I was before I was admitted. And that's my drive. Yeah, doctor, I just think your story is so incredible. It just gives us insight as to what's happening in the hospitals. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just very honored to speak to you. I mean, this is a bit out there. And, um, you know, like in the movies, when you see people have these near-death experiences and all of a sudden their whole lives change and they, they, I don't know, they stop working in mining and perhaps become some sort of traveler or change something within themselves. 
Is that something that you maybe are experiencing or have experienced after this? Yeah, I get that question a lot from friends. That probably wants me to change a bit. <laughs> but no, not, not, not really. I think what I alluded to earlier is the one thing that I was, to me, was a big pivot was the ability now to actually verbalize my gratitude towards friends and people that care. Whether it's the, the guy cleaning the, the road or the lady at the till at the, at the retailer, I think that, that changed. I said to myself, there is more good than, than evil by far. Um, and evil is not even appropriate word in this um, interview. I'm still the way I am. I don't think that will change. I'm happy with my lifestyle and my career. But I'm going to sweat the small stuff less, just be honest on that one. You know, to say, wait a minute, there's, I can lose friends in a, in a blink of an eye. And I think that has changed. I just have that, yeah, I think that appreciation of the human being's ability, not in terms of only clinical, medical uh, proficiency, but the emotional. So, yeah, I care for my fellow human being more, I would say. And I think it's week four. I'm sure it will persist. This was a big enough experience to say this is sustainable. But so yeah, overall very positive. Dr. Berger, I just want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. I think um, it's given me a lot of perspective. Obviously, to be in someone else's shoes that has been through this makes it less far removed. And to see the humanity and to think about the doctors and the nurses and the people on the front line that are there, that are working every day um, to keep us safe, is just incredibly inspiring. And I just really, really want to thank you for telling us a story that maybe mainstream media are not showing right now and making this COVID-19, for me, so real. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to, to recognize the front line. They say in times of tragedy, look for the helpers. Those are the heroes that we need to celebrate. And I'm taking away from this that the people on the front line are the people that we need to celebrate. I have to say the next couple of weeks and months are going to be incredibly tough. And I just think we need to be more thoughtful of each other. We need to practice more kindness and maybe love a little bit louder. Wishing you guys only good things. I'm Brendan DeCue, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy, and you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a Jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate, or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM, or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks, and only good things.